Corpus delicti is a Latin term that means the body of a crime. It's the proof that a crime has been committed, which is necessary before finding out who committed the crime. And crimes certainly don't all look alike. Corpus Delicti is also a true crime podcast that takes a serious approach into various ways crimes are committed. Cruise ship deaths, historical crimes, and women who kill are just a few of the themes we have covered cases on. We even dive deep into the case of a likely innocent man on death row in our home state of Alabama. We have more than 200 episodes, so there's plenty to binge. Join us every week, wherever you get your podcasts, as we dive into a new case within our current series. That's C-O-R-P-U-S-D-E-L-I-C-T-I. Hope to see you soon. You're listening to DNA ID, brought to you by Abjack Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including The Murder in My Family, Missing Persons, Scene of the Crime, Zodiac Speaking, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, Citizen Detective, and Campus Killings. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. This episode of DNA ID is sponsored by GEDmatch, the free genealogy website where you can learn about your ancestry and find family members you're related to through DNA, not to mention help catch the bad guys we talk about in every episode. Episode 43, Bobby Joe Oberholzer and Annette Schnee. It was 1982. On January 7th, Eileen Franklin's phone rang at her home in Sioux City, Iowa. To her surprise, it was her daughter's roommate all the way from Breckenridge, Colorado and it wasn't good news. The roommate told Eileen that her 21-year-old daughter, Annette, hadn't come home the night before. Not only that, Annette hadn't shown up for work that morning either. No one knew where she was. In the wee hours of that same day, the 7th of January, Breckenridge police had been informed of a missing woman. No, it wasn't Annette. Police had received a missing persons report regarding 29-year-old Bobby Joe Oberholzer from her husband Jeff at 3.30 a.m. Bobby Joe was found almost exactly 12 hours later, but not by the police. Some friends of Bobby Joe's husband, Jeff, had formed a search party to look for the missing woman. Just before 3 p.m., they started at the top of 11,300-foot-high Hoosier Pass at the Continental Divide, the Rocky Mountain Pass between Breckenridge and Alma, traversed by Colorado Highway 9. They knew Bobby Joe would have had to travel over the pass to get from Breckenridge, where she was last known to be, to her home in Alma. 1982 was a very snowy winter in Colorado, and the snowbanks were piled high along Highway 9. Some of the searchers set out on skis to search the snowy terrain for any sign of Bobby Joe. In a stroke of incredible luck, within minutes, the skiers found what they were hoping they wouldn't. The body of a woman lay face down in a snowbank, 
about 20 feet off the southbound side of the freshly plowed roadway. This was just about 300 yards south of the Hoosier Pass Summit parking lot. She lay behind one of the snowdrifts created by the plow trucks. They were so high that the 50-mile-per-hour signpost was mostly obscured. She was fully clothed, and she was frozen solid. It was Bobby Joe. The best man from Bobby Joe and Jeff's wedding had to call and tell his buddy Jeff that his wife was no more. Bobby Joe's cause of death wasn't immediately obvious to those surveying her body at the scene. She had no wounds that were apparent, although there was blood in the snow. But Bobby Joe wasn't an accident victim. Despite initial assumptions that she must have succumbed to the elements trying to walk home in that weather or had gotten hit by a plow truck or motorist during the dark and stormy night, that was not the case. She had been shot in the chest and left to die in the snow. So Bobby Joe was found the victim of a homicide within 12 hours of being reported missing. The same was not true for the other young woman who went missing on the same day. Annette Schnee, the young woman who hailed from Sioux Falls and who had not come home on the night of the 6th or shown up for work on the 7th, was reported missing by co-workers on the 8th. Annette was a very reliable employee, and her vanishing off the face of the earth was cause for alarm. And they put together that she had missed her shift on the night of January 6th at the bar where she was a waitress, and she seemed to have vanished. But police had zero luck finding her. And in fact, they didn't. It was a 13-year-old boy who stumbled across her body. On July 8, 1982, seven months to the day after Annette was reported missing, a youth was fishing in Sacramento Creek. This was four and a half miles west of Fairplay, south of Alma, about 10 miles south of Bobby Joe's body on Hoosier Pass. The boy came across the fully dressed body of a woman face down in the creek. Annette Schnee was identified by dental records. She had been shot once in the back. It didn't take the media long to grab hold of the story. On the 9th, the day after Annette was found, a Colorado Springs Gazette headline blared, Link found between two slayings. The similarities of the crimes were marked. Two young women in their 20s. Both women were found fully dressed. Both had been shot. They were dumped within 10 miles of each other. Both women had to traverse Hoosier Pass to get to and from work. Both women hitchhiked as a rule, and in fact, Annette and Bobby Joe had both been seen hitchhiking the day they disappeared. Oh, and both had last been seen on the same day, January 6th. Investigators, however, could not find any connection between the two women. In fact, they did not believe Annette and Bobby Joe even knew each other at all. But the similarities in their murders were impossible to overlook. Quote, we are reviewing the possibility that they were killed by the same person on the same day, said CBI Director Ray Enright. But why and how? How did these two women, who did not know each other, end up in the company of the same lethal person? Were they together for some reason? Did their slayings happen at the same time? And of course, the biggest question of all, who could have carried out not one, but two crimes on the same night? Let's take a pause here to talk about our victims. Bobby Jo Burns Oberholzer was the daughter of Dory Sartik of Racine, Wisconsin, and Thomas Burns of Sturtevant, Wisconsin. Bobby Joe and Jeff had both grown up in Racine, but they moved to Colorado to live in the mountains. Bobby Joe, whose real name was Barbara, and Jeff married on July 1, 1977, when she was 26 and he was 23. They settled in Alma. 
Jeff ran an appliance repair business, and Bobby Joe was a receptionist at a real estate office. Bobby Joe's daughter Jackie, who Bobby Joe had as a teen before she was with Jeff, lived in Wisconsin with her dad. Jackie was 11 when her mom was killed. One of the well-known photos of Bobby Joe shows a pretty young blonde woman with a large dog, its paw lovingly draped over her forearm. The portrait was a gift from Bobby Joe to Jeff. The story goes that she wanted the dog, named Hey You, in the photo too, but the portrait studio in the mall would not allow dogs. So Bobby Joe and her sister pretended she was blind and had the dog lead her into the store. Bobby Joe was a meticulous planner. She was planning on building a horse corral at the house she shared with Jeff, and she carried a notebook with her with all the sketches, measurements, and budget line items for the project. When she died, Bobby Joe had long blonde hair and was five foot three inches tall and only 100 pounds. Annette K. Schnee was from Sioux Falls, Iowa. She was a daughter of Laurel and Eileen Franklin. Annette graduated from East High School, where she was on the drill team, in 1978, and then went on to the Patricia Stevens School for Girls in Omaha, a modeling school. She moved to Colorado in 1979. She aspired to become a flight attendant. Her sister Cindy French described her as goofy and funny, but Annette was also strikingly pretty. When she died, she was living with five female roommates in a Blue River subdivision. At age 21, she had long blonde hair and was five foot three and 102 pounds. Both women were tiny. If I were the cops, I'd be looking for a suspect on the smaller side, someone who was not confident he could overpower anyone but a very petite female. Let's talk about the timelines in both Annette and Bobby Joe's cases. We know quite a bit about Bobby Joe's day on January 6th because her husband Jeff was able to recount much of it. She and Jeff awoke at 5.30, which was customary, and got ready for the workday. Jeff used their shared pickup truck for his work as a handyman, so Bobby Joe had to hitchhike to her job. She left the house at 7.15 a.m. as usual and stood on the side of the road, hoping that someone would pull over and pick her up. Now, before everyone freaks out, yes, hitchhiking can be extremely dangerous. But this was 1982 Colorado. It just went with the lifestyle. The Breckenridge Ski Resort area was one of those small, relaxed places where folks among the few thousand year-round population knew each other, people just hitched rides, and everyone tried to help each other out by giving rides to those thumbing for them. Jeff later told Unsolved Mysteries, quote, Everybody hitchhiked. You got to know the people in town, and they got to know you, and they'd look for you to take you over and back if you needed a ride. It was not considered strange at all for people to do this, and in fact, you still see people hitching in the Colorado mountain towns today. I shudder to think of poor Bobby Joe standing on the side of the road in the near dark at 7.15 a.m. in January, but she was used to it, and she was far from the only one doing it. Anyway, Bobby Joe made it to work that morning, arriving at 8.30 as usual. She worked at a real estate office in the Bell Tower Strip Mall in Breckenridge, and she was there for her normal 8.30 to 5 shift. After work, she headed a few doors down to a local pub called the Village Pub with a couple of colleagues for a drink. They were celebrating Bobby Joe's promotion to office manager. News reports say she tried to call Jeff from the pub phone, but he didn't answer. But he did answer the next time she called at 6.20 p.m., she told him very specifically that she would get a ride home with the guys she was with, Char McKesson and Dan Carey. She wasn't driving, so Bobby Joe had three rum and cokes, and then she felt it was time to go home. But Dan and Char wanted to stay. 
Bobby Joe got impatient waiting for a lift, so she skipped out of the bar, telling the bartender to let her friends know that she was going to hitch a ride over Hoosier Pass to home. I was skeptical when I read the reports about the temperature outside that evening. I had a hard time believing anyone would even go outside, much less hitchhike in the weather being described. All the articles say that the temp that night dropped between 20 and 30 degrees below zero Fahrenheit. But apparently it was true, and Bobby Joe went to a parking lot known as the Hitchhiking Station and stuck her thumb out at passing vehicles. I have to wonder whether Bobby Joe was more inclined to accept a ride from someone she otherwise might not have, had the weather not been so dangerously frigid that night. It is known that Bobby Joe left the strip mall on her own. A woman she knew who worked at a gift shop in the Bell Tower Mall waved at her as she closed up shop. And a driver of a beat-up pickup truck, a guy named Bill Rogers, later told investigators that he stopped and talked to a woman he thought could have been Bobby Joe. At 7.50 p.m., she was standing across the street from the Minute Mart, about 100 yards away from the village pub. This was a parking lot area of town informally referred to by the locals as Hitchhiker's Corner, because it was a central spot at the intersection of Main Street and Broken Lance Road where, on any given day throughout the day, 50 or 60 hitchhikers would wait for rides. Rogers remembered Bobby Joe when he saw her photo in the papers after she was killed. She stuck out strongly in his mind because the weather was so bad that night there was no one else waiting for a ride. In fact, he said he saw only one other truck, a green one, on the road that night during his entire drive to Blue River. It was basically deserted out, with people hunkered down to wait out the frigid air and blustering snow. Rogers pulled over and offered Bobby Joe a ride southbound, but he wasn't going all the way to Alma, 17 miles from Breckenridge, where she lived. So she took a pass. The next driver to pull over was almost certainly her killer. Today, we want to tell you about how you can get involved in solving some of these cases that you've been hearing about on our show. Many of you are probably familiar with GEDmatch. I mention it in pretty much every episode. It's a free genealogy website where you can learn about your ancestry and find family members you're related to through DNA, even if you've tested using different companies. It's also one of the sites used by law enforcement to solve the Golden State Killer case in 2018, and since then has been involved in 500 or more other cases. It is also not used for just violent crimes like murders and sexual assault, but also for identifying John and Jane Doe's and exonerating innocent people who were put away for the wrong reasons. If you've already done a DNA test with a direct-to-consumer testing company like 23andMe, Ancestry, MyHeritage, or FamilyTreeDNA, it's easy to upload to GEDmatch and help law enforcement with genetic tips and leads. I'm going to walk you through it. First, go to the company website where you have had your DNA testing done and download your profile as a DNA data file. Next, go to GEDmatch and upload the file to GEDmatch for processing. Make sure to choose to opt in for law enforcement searches that cover violent crime and missing persons cases. If you want to focus on being helpful to finding identities for unidentified bodies, you can just opt out, which will exclude your profile from violent crime case searches. Within 24 hours of this upload, you'll have access to a suite of DNA tools, allowing you to delve deeper into your results. Compare your DNA to everyone on the site or to a specific person, or find matches that are related to two different people, plus much more. 
Some people think that law enforcement gets access to your raw DNA when you upload your profile. This is not true. Law enforcement does not get to see your raw DNA data when you consent to allow your data to be included in those types of searches. They have the same access as any other civilian user of GEDmatch. They can only see your name or GEDmatch alias if you've entered one, email address, and how much shared DNA there is between you and the unknown profile uploaded. GEDmatch is a highly secure site built with consumer security in mind, where users are in control of information they upload and can delete their data whenever they want. By joining the GEDmatch community, you can help see violent criminals brought to justice, missing people located, and unidentified bodies given a name. Join GEDmatch today. Make sure you use GEDmatch.com slash DNA ID. That's GEDmatch.com slash DNA ID. Jeff told investigators that when Bobby Joe didn't show up at home, he was a little peeved. He tried to wait up but fell asleep. Then he woke up at some time after midnight alarmed. He knew the bars closed at 2 o'clock a.m., so he waited, thinking Bobby Joe maybe lost track of time. But as 2 o'clock came and went, he got frantic. He threw some heavy clothes on and drove to his brother Jamie's to borrow $5 for money to use for payphones as he drove through Breckenridge looking for his wife. He was, of course, hoping that in one of his calls home, Bobby Joe would finally answer. Then he drove his pickup over Hoosier Pass into town to the bar where he knew Bobby Joe had been. Sure enough, it was closed up tight. He also checked in with Char McKesson, who had been at the bar with Bobby Joe that night. Nothing. Jeff reported Bobby Joe missing in person at 3.30 a.m. at the Breckenridge Police Station. They told him to wait until morning. So he got in his truck, jacked up the heat, and headed back home, hoping against hope that Bobby Joe was there. Of course, she wasn't. In the morning, the phone rang, and Jeff jumped to answer it. It wasn't Bobby Joe. The caller was a guy named Donald Hamilton, a local rancher. Don lived 30 miles away along a two-lane highway, Highway 285, leading from Alma to Denver. Don's yard abutted the roadway, and that morning, as he walked on his driveway, he saw something on the ground. It was the driver's license of Bobby Joe Oberholzer. Jeff told Don he'd be right over to get it. A friend drove him to the ranch, and when they got there, a walk around the property unearthed more items from Bobby Joe's wallet scattered all over the ground. But the wallet itself has never been found. As Jeff and his buddy drove off from the ranch, Jeff sitting in the passenger seat, he stared idly at the snow-covered ground passing outside the window. About five miles down Highway 285, Jeff saw something bright blue lying on the snow about 30 feet off the roadway, on the other side of a barbed wire fence. With a sinking feeling, he told his buddy to stop the truck. And when he got a closer look, Jeff was distraught to realize that he was looking at his wife Bobby Joe's blue backpack. She had carried it with her when she left for work the previous morning. In it were the usual items Bobby Joe took with her, makeup, sunglasses, business cards for Jeff's appliance service. The finding of the backpack on top of the scattered driver's license and other wallet contents in Don's yard was a very ominous sign. All this stuff appeared to have been flung out the window of a moving car. But it was some items that were with the backpack that would end up being crucial items of evidence. One was a crumpled tissue with blood droplets on it. One was a cool cigarette butt on the ground nearby. And one was a single knit glove belonging to Bobby Joe with blood on it. Now this was very bad. Jeff went home and his friends rallied around him. They decided that absent police interest in the situation, they would organize their own search party along the roadway they knew Bobby Joe would have had to travel to get home, 
Highway 9. They decided to start atop Hoosier Pass at the top of the Continental Divide, 10 miles south of Breckenridge. This was 20 miles from where the backpack was found, but it was along the route that Bobby Joe would have been driven home. Several carloads of men, Jeff's buddies, parked at the small lot atop Hoosier Pass, and some of the men got on skis, planning to use them to traverse the terrain along a dirt road that ran parallel to the highway. They only made it about 100 yards before they found her. Her body was obscured from the roadway by the snowbank down the other side of it. The searchers wisely didn't touch anything. They flagged down a Breckenridge police cruiser and told them they had found a dead body they thought was Bobby Joe Oberholzer. The investigation began. Investigators zoomed up to Hoosier Pass along Colorado 9 and started combing the area. One of the men who responded to the scene was Jim Hardke, an agent with the Colorado Bureau of Investigation, or CBI. He was on duty when the call came in from Norm Howey, the Park County Sheriff, that a body had been found on Hoosier Pass. He got in his car and started the trek into the mountains. Little did Hartke know that he would work the case for decades to come. He drove up to the isolated mountain area on Highway 9 where the body had been found. Bobby Joe was determined to have been killed by the shot to the right side of her chest, which penetrated her lung. She had another superficial gunshot as well, a grazing wound to the flesh of her right hand that went on to graze her right breast. Neither gunshot was fatal. Bobby Joe had bled to death or frozen to death or a combination of the two. Tests determined that she had not been sexually assaulted. Tracks in the snow and tire tracks and footprints in the small parking area atop the pass told investigators pretty much exactly what had happened. A car had pulled over in the parking area, a desolate location where, they believed, Bobby Joe's assailant attempted to sexually assault her in the vehicle. Bobby Joe had gotten out of the car and there had been a scuffle. This from the Denver Post, quote, Evidence indicated that she had fought her way out of a car parked at Hoosier Pass, causing her attacker to bleed. It appears she popped him in the nose, said Charlie McCormick, a member of the 11th Judicial District Homicide Task Force investigating the murders. Once Bobby Joe fought her way out of the car, she started running. Her tracks showed her trajectory through the snow. At some point, she fell on a hard surface, skinning both her knees badly. This is believed to be when she dropped the keychain she had with a hook on it. I'll come back to that later. She then ran about 300 yards downhill, scrambling over snowbanks to get to the safety of the tree line. But at some point, the tracks showed she stopped, hesitated, and appeared to backtrack. Then the slug caught her in the chest from a distance of only a couple feet. Her killer had apparently chased her, caught up, and fired two shots, one of which only grazed her. Bobby Joe fell on her back in the snowbank, leaving a trail of blood in the snow as she slid down the bank trying to climb back up. She lay on her back, knees bent as if she was trying to brace herself or even get upright. Eventually, she died, whether from freezing to death or blood loss, no one could determine. Based on the timeline of Bobby Joe's suspected abduction, it would have been dark, possibly snowing, and very cold, close to negative 30 degrees Fahrenheit at that elevation. Disturbingly, Bobby Joe still had two 18-inch plastic zip ties around her left wrist. One was tight and the other was looped through it. It appeared she had escaped the vehicle and made a run for it as her killer was attempting to bind her hands. Investigators photographed the scene and collected vials of bloody snow. 
On the side of the highway, investigators found Bobby Joe's knit hat and the second glove, partners to the one found by Jeff earlier. She dropped them when she ran over the snowbank. Two days after Bobby Joe was found, a youth named William Perrin was at the summit of Hoosier Pass. William and his brother Stoney lived with their mother in a cabin in Alma in the Flanagan Circle neighborhood. It's not really clear what William was doing at the top of the pass, but on the ground, peeking out from snow that had been plowed, he came upon something. It was a set of keys. William gave the keys to his mom, and she turned them over to the sheriff's department. The keys belonged to Bobby Joe. They were a poignant discovery because the key ring featured a sharp metal hook that Jeff had fashioned for his wife to use as a weapon against an attacker if need be. It appeared that Bobby Joe had been able to grasp the key ring but somehow had failed to protect herself with it, and then she dropped it in the parking lot as she fell. And then the weirdest clue of all. On the same day as Bobby Joe's body was found, a woolen burnt orange ankle sock was found in the parking lot, very close to the scuff marks on the ground showing there was a struggle. No one knew where the sock had come from or whether it was related to Bobby Joe's murder. Bobby Joe was found still wearing her boots and her own white socks on her feet. At autopsy, a segment of a thirty-eight caliber Winchester hollow-point bullet copper jacket was removed from Bobby Joe's body. It had broken apart after hitting bone. Investigators concluded that the weapon used was a thirty-eight or a three fifty-seven handgun firing a Remington Peters copper-jacketed hollow-point bullet. It had five lands and grooves with a right twist. Powder burns on Bobby Joe's jacket showed that it was fired at close range. She was also found to have freshly skinned knees, a small cut on her throat, and injuries to her knuckles that could have been from trying to escape from the zip ties. As I said earlier, Jeff's best man had to tell him his wife was dead. Jeff says he made the police open up the body bag so he could see for himself. It was hard to grasp that in the few hours since he talked to Bobby Joe from the bar phone, she was shot dead running away from some psycho atop Hoosier Pass. After Bobby Joe was found, the Breckenridge Police Chief Ralph Schutz said, quote, We are hoping this would stop all women from hitchhiking. Okay, I'm going to skip ahead now to address Annette Schnee's timeline. As we know, Annette, unlike Bobby Joe, was missing for seven months before she was found. Her family has said that when she remained out of touch for days, they knew something was very, very wrong. Her mother, Eileen, traveled to Blue River and went to her daughter's house. She said nothing was missing. It was clear Annette never meant to disappear. Annette's siblings walked the roadways looking for clues to her whereabouts, but they found nothing. Here's what we know about her last hours. Annette, only 21 years old, worked on the cleaning staff at the Holiday Inn in Frisco. This was a good 10 miles from Breckenridge, where her second job was, as a waitress at a pub called The Flipside. On January 6th, she left work at the Holiday Inn at 3.30 because she was ill. She was having female issues. I'm going to leave it there. She popped into the Frisco Medical Center for an internal exam and then hitched a ride to Breckenridge. Annette didn't have a car and reportedly relied on hitchhiking daily as her primary means of transportation. This day was no different. Once in Breckenridge, Annette stopped into the local pharmacy called the drugstore. The pharmacist on duty, Bob Beecher, filled a prescription for her at 4.30, store records showed. Police spoke to Bob, and he remembered Annette coming in. 
The weird thing was, he distinctly recalled that she had a woman with her, someone he didn't know, and Annette was reminding her to buy Marlboro cigarettes. The two women walked out of the drugstore together. Despite investigators' push to find this woman and public circulation of a sketch of her showing a five-foot-four-inch slender white woman with dark hair dressed for camping, this woman has never been identified. Annette was last seen on Wednesday, January 6th at 4.45 p.m., and everyone believes she intended to hitchhike south from Breckenridge. Investigators think she was heading home. She lived with five other young women in Blue River, six miles south of Breckenridge, toward Alma. She would have had to be back in Breckenridge for her waitress shift at the flip side, which started at 8.30. Annette never made it home. Her waitress uniform was still neatly hanging in her closet the next morning. On the 7th, her mom, Eileen, got that phone call that her daughter hadn't shown up for work. Personnel from the Holiday Inn reported her missing the next day. But she was not found until July 3rd, 1982, when the teen angler came across her body in Sacramento Creek, 20 miles south of Breckenridge. This was at the end of a dead-end road in a super-desolate area. There were no houses for miles. A Colorado cold case website described the area as, quote, a rural, isolated mountain valley area where there would be no witnesses, it would have been dark, possibly snowing, and very cold, negative 20 degrees Fahrenheit. Annette was lying well-preserved by the ice-cold snow runoff, partially in knee-deep waters and partially on the bank, pushed against a willow tree. Her body had been frozen and had recently thawed. Annette had been shot once in the back, as exhibited by a bullet hole in her jacket. She died from blood loss and hypothermia. Even though the bullet was never recovered, and for a time, investigators suspected Annette might have been killed elsewhere, police came to believe she was shot where she was found. Remember, a thirty-eight caliber bullet jacket had been found inside Bobby Joe. The bullet wound on Annette's back was consistent with the same size projectile. Like Bobby Joe, Annette was found fully clothed, but police said it appeared she had been redressed or had dressed in haste or under stress. This was because Annette was found wearing mismatched socks and with her boots on the wrong feet. Unfortunately, because she had been lying in the water for seven months, testing conducted on her body and clothing was never able to determine whether Annette was sexually assaulted. Police believe the circumstantial evidence pointed to Annette being driven to this out-of-the-way location, forced to undress at least partially, and then she somehow managed to redress herself, however hastily, before she was killed. They were able to identify her because in her hoodie pocket were her driver's license and social security card. They were both encased in a plastic wallet insert, so they were preserved despite the body being partially submerged in water for months. Her wallet has never been recovered. Bobby Joe's case had started to cool off when the discovery of Annette's body revitalized the investigation and confirmed that the two cases were likely linked, not just because of the similarities in the circumstances and the impossible coincidence of the dates of disappearance slash death. It was the orange sock. Remember that a knit ankle sock was found in the Hoosier Pass Summit parking area, where police believed that Bobby Joe had been driven by her attacker and where an attempted rape went down inside his vehicle. No one knew whether the sock was related to the homicide until Annette's body was found. CBI agent Jim Hartke, assigned to Bobby Joe's case, attended the autopsy of Annette Schnee. 
Investigators speculated that the cases might be related, so Hartke was doing his due diligence on the Schnee case. This from Denver 7, quote, In Denver, Hartke, the CBI agent on the case, went to the coroner's office for the autopsy. As they examined the body, Hartke noticed that Annette was wearing a pair of light brown boots, a pair of pants, a blue jacket, and a long striped sock on her right foot. But it was what Hartke saw on Annette's left foot that stopped him, an orange booty sock, presumably the missing match to the sock found near Bobby Joe's body seven months earlier. Okay, so just to drive that point home, on her right foot, Annette was wearing a knee-high striped purple sock, the partner of which was found inside the pocket of her blood-stained hoodie. On her left foot, she was wearing an orange woolen ankle sock. Fiber analysis on this orange sock and the one found at Bobby Joe's crime scene showed that they were identical. Police had to explain how this sock thing could have occurred. How was one sock at Bobby Joe's scene and the other sock on Annette's person? The socks were shown to belong to Annette, found 20 miles from Hoosier Pass. How did one of the socks end up near the dead body of a woman Annette did not know miles away? Since Annette was found wearing one striped sock and the other was found in her sweatshirt pocket, Summit County Sheriff's Investigator Richard Eaton surmised that after she was assaulted, Annette had been struggling to get dressed in the assailant's car in the dark. Or it's possible that she had gotten partially undressed and then had managed to dress herself and escape. She had dressed for the extreme cold that day. She had been clad in the striped knee socks with the orange ankle socks over them. The ankle socks were a Christmas gift in the color of her high school alma mater sent to her that Christmas by her mother. But as Annette dressed herself, no doubt traumatized and in tears by the kidnapping, possibly in terror and under duress with a weapon pointed at her, hurrying and having trouble seeing in the dark interior of the vehicle, she hadn't been able to find her second orange sock or her other striped purple sock. So she made do with one of each. Then she put her boots on the wrong feet. What happened next is unknown, whether the killer told her to get out of the car and run, or whether she believed she was being let go, or whether she managed to escape and run, we don't know. But as she had her back to her assailant, he shot her and she fell into the snow, covering the frozen stream. Then, the speculation goes, at the Hoosier overpass parking lot several hours later, when Bobby Joe escaped from the car and made a run for it, the other orange sock fell out onto the snow-covered parking lot surface. Bobby Joe was found wearing her own pair of white socks. She had not gotten undressed at all that night. She rebuffed her killer, hitting him in the nose or in the face, and jumped out of the car, and the orange sock left behind in the vehicle by Annette fell out with her. The orange sock cemented in investigators' minds that the killer of Bobby Joe Oberholzer and the killer of Annette Schnee was one and the same and the two women had almost certainly been attacked inside the same vehicle. There was no other rational explanation. This theory was bolstered by yet another find two months later. In September 1982, a man was apparently doing something he normally did, which was hike the switchbacks up along Highway 9 up to Hoosier Pass, looking for items of value. Detective Sergeant Wendy Kippel of the Park County Sheriff's Office told me that at the third switchback from the top, there is a dangerous curve, and trucks and other vehicles are often losing hubcaps and other car parts over the guardrail there. This man, whose name has not been reported, was in the habit of gathering up this detritus, probably to sell it. 
Anyway, in September of 1982, as he was perusing the area outside the guardrail, he found a backpack. It had inside a bunch of accoutrements typically carried by a young woman, change, keys, a tub of Carmex. But there was also a health insurance card in the backpack, and it showed that the pack belonged to a young woman named Annette Schnee, whose body had been found two months earlier, 20 miles away. Okay, so let's recap all these discoveries and how they informed the working theory of the investigators, which was that Annette and Bobby Joe were abducted by the same person at two different times on the evening of January 6, 1982. At 4.45 p.m., Annette was in Breckenridge trying to score a ride south to Blue River. She never made it. Around 7.50 p.m., Bobby Joe was in Breckenridge, standing outside the Minute Mart trying to score a ride south to Alma. She never made it. The timeline indicated that Annette was almost certainly abducted first, and police believe the attacks went down separately. Because it's theoretically possible that Bobby Joe and Annette were picked up at the same time, but it doesn't really work, right? Annette never made it home to Blue River that day, and she had to be back in Breckenridge for work at 8.30. So she almost certainly wasn't hitching a ride out of town at the same time Bobby Joe was, which was 7.50. And police don't believe they were together. But what happened? Did Annette get a ride at 445 in Breckenridge with her killer who attacked and killed her 20 miles away on a remote road? And then he drove back to Breckenridge, throwing her backpack out the window as he drove over Hoosier Pass? Then at 750, he picked up Bobby Joe and this time pulled over and tried to assault her and ended up killing her much closer by at the top of Hoosier Pass. If so, it was incredibly brazen of this guy to circle back to Breckenridge to select a second victim mere hours after he'd abducted the first. Was this guy running a terrifying taxi service? How did he know someone hadn't seen Annette getting into his vehicle? And how did he know that no one would happen to be driving over Hoosier Pass as he was chasing down and shooting Bobby Joe? Why did he scatter her stuff out the car window along Highway 285, yet the orange sock and Bobby Joe's keys were found right at her crime scene? Did Annette and Bobby Joe know this guy? Police had a lot of questions and very few answers. The investigation ramped up, but there wasn't a lot to go on. Investigators were not able to find the people who might have given the women rides that day or anyone who saw them actually getting into cars. No one came forward to say they had. They couldn't find the woman seen talking to Bobby Joe at the drugstore. They couldn't locate anyone who heard gunshots at either location. Nothing, we have absolutely nothing, Summit County Detective Dave Mikesell told a local newspaper, the Summit Sentinel, in early February. After Annette was found five months later, they had a double murder, but still very few leads. The lack of connection between the women did not help. But pretty soon, police set their sights on a suspect. After Bobby Joe was killed, but before Annette was found, Jeff Oberholzer was the subject of suspicion by the police. They found it very odd that he just happened to find his wife's backpack, the glove, and the tissue as he supposedly drove by in a passing truck 30 feet away. The blood on the glove was tested for blood type, which was all they could do back in 1982. The blood type was consistent with Bobby Joe's blood type, but it was also consistent with Jeff's. Richard Eaton, the Summit County investigator, also felt that Jeff was overstepping. He took on parts of the investigation himself, calling around and confronting people who he thought might have information about his wife's case. Bobby Joe's family told police they weren't sure the marriage was as happy as Jeff said it was. 
And, of course, Bobby Joe would have happily accepted a ride from her own husband that night. Years later, Jeff told Unsolved Mysteries, quote, I can only say that I didn't do anything. As a matter of fact, we had just planned several days before that it was time for us to have children. I miss my wife. I did not kill her. But investigators were skeptical, and I have to say, if I'd been investigating the case, I too would have found it very hard not to side-eye Jeff Oberholzer when I heard this next part. After Bobby Joe's death, when investigators were trying to determine whether Annette's case was linked, they asked Jeff if either he or his wife knew Annette. Jeff denied knowing her and said Bobby Joe didn't either. But then after he saw her photograph in the paper, he came back to the investigators and said, actually, I met her once. She was hitchhiking and I gave her a ride. I picked her up and drove her to Frisco to her job where I was going anyway. And I gave her my business card in case she ever needed appliance repair. She never called, he said. A friend of Bobby Joe's could back up part of this story. Jeff had picked up Annette on the way to Frisco, but he had to stop at the bank on the way. She stayed in the truck while he ran inside the bank. This friend of Bobby Joe's approached the truck thinking the blonde inside was Bobby Joe. She wanted to say hi. But it wasn't. The friend didn't know Annette, but she was later able to identify a photo of Annette as the woman she saw with Jeff Oberholzer that day. So Jeff admitted to being with Annette one day before her disappearance and before his wife's murder. Well, it got worse. When Annette was found, remember I said she had a plastic wallet insert in her hoodie pocket. Well, guess whose business card was inside? Alpine Appliance Sales and Service, Jeff's company. Jeff had tangible links to both dead women. Then Park County Sheriff Robert Harrison did not beat around the bush. He said on Unsolved Mysteries, quote, The fact that two victims would both be associated or known by one individual, well, it makes the investigation tend to focus on Jeff Oberholzer as the primary suspect. Needless to say, local rumors about Jeff's involvement spiraled out of control. Some people thought he must have been having an affair with Annette and killed her, and then killed Bobby Joe when she threatened to reveal his secret. Investigators struggled to pin down exactly what had gone on and to rule Jeff either definitively in or out. But it didn't help matters that he didn't have much of an alibi. He had been at work that day, but could possibly have abducted Annette at 4.45 p.m. after his workday ended. But he would have had to have time to drive her far away, assault her, kill her, and get back home for his wife's phone call home, which came in around 6.20 p.m., according to her friends at the bar. After that, Jeff insisted that he had an alibi. His friend Joe Urban had come over to drink a couple of beers and watch TV. He had been at Jeff's house in Alma from 7 to 8.15 p.m., Jeff said. If that was true, it didn't really work for Jeff to kill his wife at the Hoosier Pass, a half hour away, when she was last seen hitchhiking at 7.45. The problem was that Jeff was not able to help police locate this guy, Joe, for nine years. When he was finally interviewed in December 1990, he gave a slightly different timeline. I'm not sure how sure he could be after nearly a decade, but okay. So Jeff's alibi was in the crapper, and he knew both women, however, remotely. And police had searched his home with a warrant and taken Jeff's pistol, a thirty-eight caliber, one of the possibilities for the murder weapon. But Jeff continued to protest his innocence. And two months after Bobby Joe's death, he took and passed a polygraph exam. Later, he took and passed a second lie detector test. 
and the gun Jeff owned was found to leave different rifling characteristics on shells fired from its chamber than the gun that had killed Bobby Joe. Charlie McCormick, the seasoned investigator who worked this case from 1989 until its resolution this past month, pronounced that zero physical evidence connected Jeff to the crime. Police turned his house and his life upside down and had found nothing but a gun that didn't kill his wife. Nothing appeared to really connect him to Annette other than the business card, which he admitted giving her as he had a stack in his truck. The timeline really didn't work either, and there was no evidence of strife between him and Bobby Joe. I'm going to cut to the chase here and state that although Jeff remained on the suspect list for over a decade, he was eventually cleared of any wrongdoing by the authorities. After he had lived for years under suspicion, Charlie McCormick and Richard Eaton finally sat him down and told him they didn't think he was involved. And years later, DNA testing would prove that once and for all. Jeff told Unsolved Mysteries in 1992, quote, As far as the finger being pointed at me, I'm still very, very angry about that. If different agencies had pursued different avenues and not concentrated so much on trying to find me guilty, we may have found out who did this to these girls. Detective Richard Eaton of the Summit County Sheriff's Office said that when Annette was found, investigators became convinced that someone local was the killer. The dead-end country road Annette was found down was remote, and not somewhere a foreigner to the area would stumble on. And Jeff told investigators that his wife wouldn't just accept a ride from anyone. Bobby Joe was known to have personal rules about getting rides from multiple guys in one vehicle, and she would knock it into vans, period. Jeff, however, thought that whoever picked Bobby Joe up that night had to be someone she knew, although in that weather, it could have just been someone who looked trustworthy and well-intentioned. Jeff Oberholzer said, quote, My wife wouldn't have gotten into a vehicle with just a couple of strange guys. She knew that she could call me for a ride if she wanted to. I think she knew someone and that they left together with a promise to her of taking her home. This all from Denver 7, quote, The area where Schnee was found, you'd almost have to know it was there, CBI agent Jim Hartke said. You'd have to be a local of some sort. Hartke and the investigators pulled a list of local sex offenders and worked to rule them out. When one witness vaguely remembered seeing a vehicle that might have been involved in the killings, the detectives resorted to hypnosis to get more information. The witness managed to recall a partial license plate number, and the investigators tracked down every potential plate in the state. When a tipster in Alabama claimed to overhear the two men discussing the murders at a diner, Hartke traveled to Birmingham to check it out, but those early leads went nowhere. Investigators also looked into Annette's past to see if there was anyone with a motive to harm her. She was single at the time of her murder, but had a few exes whom, Sergeant Kipple told me, were one by one ruled out. Then there was the photograph. Another man was sought by police as someone they wanted to talk to, but they had no idea who he was. This was a young white man with a crew cut who was the subject of a black and white photograph that had been found in Annette's backpack. There was no identifying information on the photo, which was taken at one of those selfie photo booths. According to the Summit Daily, it was taken in 1977. No one among Annette's friends or family knew who this man was. Investigators were not able to find him, and that seemingly promising lead dried up. Richard Eaton was assigned to the case in 1984 as the lead investigator for the Summit County Sheriff's Office. 
1989, he ran into retired Denver detective Charlie McCormick, and the two had lunch together. Eaton asked McCormick to review the now seven-year-old case file, and McCormick immediately became obsessed with it. He signed a contract with a Netschnees family who lived out of state to act as a private investigator on their behalf, charging them a nominal fee of $1 per year. He also joined a task force put together in 1989 by the 11th Judicial Circuit DA's office, and eventually worked as an appointed detective for a task force through the Park County Sheriff's Office. As part of the investigation, according to the Denver Post, the FBI's Behavioral Science Unit wrote up a psychological profile on the suspect at the time. The profile of the killer concluded, quote, He isn't sure he committed the crime because it appears as a dream to him. It is believed this suspect does not feel good about what he has done. Although the suspect carries this heavy emotional burden, investigators know he'll feel very relieved when he admits the crime. Release of this language to the public was a thinly veiled attempt to get the killer to come forward and admit to his crimes. But it didn't work. The investigation stalled. Let's talk about some suspects other than Jeff Oberholzer. There was a suspect who was considered by police for a short time. Longtime listeners of the show will be rolling their eyes here because it's about this point in many, many episodes when the same name comes up. Good old Henry Lee Lucas. A January 1984 article by the Associated Press says that the Summit County Sheriff's Office was investigating Lucas in connection with the Oberholzer Schnee case. This from the Denver Post, quote, In late 1983, Summit County Sheriff's investigator Tom Flores received a tip that Henry Lee Lucas, who had confessed to hundreds of murders across the country, had admitted to killing a woman in Colorado in 1982 and several other Colorado women while crisscrossing the nation with his former lover, Otis Edward Toole. Of course, those of you who know Lucas's history know that he was sentenced to death for the murder of a Texas Jane Doe, anecdotally known as Orange Socks. I'm not sure if Lucas was suspected because he confessed to killing a woman who was found wearing only orange socks, definitely an eerie parallel to this case. I don't want to waste any more time talking about Lucas, though. He was on the suspect list, but he didn't kill Annette and Bobby Joe. He was eventually ruled out by DNA. Let's move on to another suspect who appeared a lot more promising. When retired investigator Charlie McCormick took this case on in 1989, he started looking at other crimes that could be relevant. And there was a violent crime right in the same area just six weeks after Annette and Bobby Joe were attacked in January 1982. That February, a local taxi driver named Thomas Luther picked up a Denver woman named Mary in Frisco. He raped her and beat her with a hammer so badly that she barely survived. The M.O. wasn't quite the same, but the proximity in timing and motive of sexual assault appeared to mirror that in the Oberholzer and Schnee cases. And as a cab driver, Luther would have had, of course, access to hitchhiking women. Luther ended up being convicted in the hammer attack on Mary and served 10 years. But when he was released on parole, he hadn't exactly been rehabilitated. In March 1983, fresh out of jail, he abducted 20-year-old Cher Elder, raped her, shot her in the back of the head, and buried her in Empire. According to the Denver Post, quote, Luther had cut off her ring finger and lips because she threatened to expose an illegal sports card ring connected to him. Then, just one month later, in April 1993, Luther violently attacked another woman. This from a Denver Post article in 1995, quote, 
Thomas Edward Luther, the alleged killer of Cher Elder, is under investigation in the April 12, 1993 stabbing of another young woman in Denver's Washington Park neighborhood. The victim, then 27, had advertised her car for sale and had arranged to show the auto to a potential buyer. She was showing the car when she was attacked. The assailant stabbed her four times in the back and slashed her neck. The victim required 87 units of blood and still faces more surgery. Luther was indicted in 1995 for the murder of Cher Elder. He had been seen by witnesses leaving a casino with her, and a tip led investigators to her body. Meanwhile, Luther had already been convicted in West Virginia for a 1994 attack on a woman there. This disturbing bit of information from the Denver Post, quote, In each of Luther's convictions, he attacked women who resembled his mother, who abused him, prosecutors have said, end quote. In fact, Luther had told at least one psychiatrist that the hammer victim, Mary, reminded him of his mom. So, Luther was an incredibly sadistic and brutal rapist and murderer with mommy issues who had never been cleared in the 1982 murders of Annette and Bobby Joe. He had been looked at back in the early 80s, but it wasn't until the 90s that he heated up as a prime suspect. In 1993, investigators on the Elder case remembered that Luther had been looked at years earlier in the still-unsolved Schnee and Oberholzer murders. And they learned that while he was awaiting trial for the hammer attack on Mary, he let other inmates know that he had killed two women near Breckenridge, and he bragged that they would never find the other one. This was before Annette had been found. Investigators McCormick and Eaton confirmed with these other inmates that Luther had in fact made these remarks. And they found out that he was off work on the night of the murders and the next night, and he didn't have an alibi. And in 1982, he lived with a police trainee woman who owned a 38 caliber revolver, which he had access to. McCormick and Eaton flew to West Virginia to interrogate Luther, who was in prison there for the attack on his mom's doppelganger. He denied any involvement in Annette and Bobby Joe's deaths. He told them that he wouldn't be into shooting his victims. He preferred to bludgeon or stab them. Never mind that he had shot Cher Elder. But anyway, he took a poly that was inconclusive. It helped him stay at the top of the suspect list. This from the Denver Post, quote, We were sure it was Luther, Charlie McCormick said. But the reality is there wasn't enough evidence to take the case to trial. No physical evidence tied Thomas Luther to the murder scenes. Luther was sentenced to 48 years in prison for the murder of Cher Elder. He remained high up on the Schnee and Oberholzer suspect list for years to come. Then there was murderous rage monster Tracy Petrocelli. Petrocelli shot his girlfriend to death outside a Seattle bar in 1981 and went on a multi-state rampage. According to Charlie McCormick, Petrocelli stole cars from dealerships in Oklahoma, Colorado, Utah, Nevada, and California. Along the way, he somehow aligned himself with male accomplices whom he then had to get rid of. Quote, he picked up men, committed robberies with them, and then killed them, McCormick said. Now, Petrocelli was interesting because he had been in Breckenridge right before the Schnee and Oberholzer slayings. He and an accomplice had taken out a test car from a dealership in Thornton and shot the car salesman who survived. When police caught up with Petrocelli, he told them he had stayed only one night in Breckenridge at the Holiday Inn in Frisco where Annette Schnee worked. It was a tantalizing link, but it went nowhere. Petrocelli denied killing the two women. He was eventually convicted of killing a car salesman in Nevada and sent to death row. 
Dale Wayne Eaton was also looked at in this case. He kidnapped, raped, and killed Lisa Marie Kimmel and dumped her body in the Platte River in Wyoming in 1988. He also used zip ties. He had buried her entire car on his property. DNA showed that Eaton was not the man whose blood was on Bobby Joe's glove. Another suspect who remained on the persons of interest list was drifter Donald Leroy Evans, who claimed to have killed as many as 60 people. His timeline and travels were murky, but it seemed he was possibly in the area in January 1982, although there was no tangible connection to Annette or Bobby Joe's cases. But investigators by this time were weary of self-professed serial killers like Lucas and Evans, who claimed responsibility. The members of the 11th Judicial District Homicide Task Force tended to believe that instead of a drifter, the person who killed the women was someone very familiar with the area. According to the Summit Daily, the task force members believed the murderer was someone familiar with the mountains because the remote area where Schnee's body was found was near a well-known makeshift firing range that locals frequented. But police had no luck tracking down anyone who was known to frequent the firing range who tripped any red flags in their minds. Nine years after the double murder, investigators were at such a standstill that they decided to cooperate with the producers of Unsolved Mysteries to air an episode about Annette and Bobby Joe's case. Investigators flat out told the Colorado Springs Gazette that they had run out of leads to follow and had no suspects. Detective Richard Eaton was blunt, quote, We have no indication, no idea who did it, end quote. It seemed that the killer had struck twice in one day and never again. Investigators were so stumped, their theories had morphed from a local to a transient serial killer who happened to be passing through town and targeted vulnerable young women who were eager to get into a warm vehicle. The Unsolved Mysteries episode brought in leads that kept the investigators busy for a few years, but soon there was a more scientific path to follow. This is the end of Part 1 of Bobby Joe Oberholzer and Annette Schnee. Part 2 is available right now.